I'm glad you guys are here. My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2. I want to invite you again to our Christmas Eve services on Tuesday. So kind of word on the street, 4.30 and 7.30 may be full. So if, you, if it works in your family plans to come at 3 or 9, you may want to do that. Or you may wind up sitting over there in that overflow room at 4.30 and 7.30. So you come when you can. If it's all the same to you, 3 and 9 may be, or is it 9? Yeah, 3 and 9 may be a bit less crowded than those uh, two middle services. And those first two are, like we are saying, those are kind of family friendly, but you can bring your, you can bring your kids at night as well. I would say the older the kid, the probably the better. It'll be a bit more contemplative, but kids are absolutely welcome at all four. So just so you know those things, uh, and then we'll look forward to seeing you whenever you can make it on Tuesday. Okay, so uh, last Sunday of Advent, that's today, we've been looking at what Jesus brings. So looking back at the first Christmas, what did Jesus bring? What are the gifts that he brought? And how does that prepare us for what Jesus wants to do in our life today through the Holy Spirit? So we've looked at hope. We said we kind of live in this age of hopelessness. And Jesus gives us a confident expectation of a better future because we know God never forgets his people and he never forgets his promises. An age of anxiety, Jesus brings peace. We can have a deep contentment uh, with life regardless of our circumstances because we know Jesus defeats our enemies and he makes our borders secure. And then last week, Russell talked about joy, that Jesus brings us joy. We can have a great delight in life, again, regardless of circumstances, because we're consciously aware of our relationship with God. That's the ground and the source of our joy. Today, this is a, a little bit different approach, but one of the things that I feel like Christmas does is uh, Christmas brings us one who's worthy of our worship, and that's Jesus. Obviously, we see God is worshiped in the Old Testament, but when he takes on flesh, and becomes a man, when he draws near to us, worship shifts from Old Testament to New Testament. There's a, there's a relational, personal aspect. Rela- worship goes from uh, just a particular people, the Jews, in a particular place, the temple in Jerusalem, to being uh, universal and open to everyone. And again, there's, there's a personal aspect to it that we see uh, when Jesus comes on the scene. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God put eternity in everyone's heart. We're all made, everyone is made to worship. Really, the only question is, to whom are we going to direct that worship? People who study cultures, anthropologists, a universal throughout time and around the world. Every culture has some version of a religion, some way of trying to make sense of life, of the world, and to connect to whatever picture of God that particular society happens to have. There's 12 major world religions, most people would say. There's about 4,200 religions total. 83, 84% of the people in the world identify with one of those religions. And even those that don't necessarily identify with a particular faith, many of them would say, I still believe in God or I'm connected to a higher power or this is my purpose in life. We're made to worship. God has put eternity into the hearts of everyone that he's created. And again, the only question is, to whom are we going to direct that worship? 
Christmas says, here's the one who's worthy, God who became a man. To live and to die and to be raised to life again so we can be adopted into his family as sons and daughters. Worship in the New Testament, there's one word that's really prominent, 54 times it's used in the New Testament of worship, proskuneo, you don't have to, it just, it's, a, it's a visual sounding word, it reminds us of prostrate. It means to literally to bow down and kiss someone's feet. It's a physical word, and it's taken on kind of a figurative meaning as we progress throughout the New Testament. So you begin to think about worship, New Testament, what does that look like? What's a heart posture that's reflective of a physical act of bowing down and kissing someone's feet? So words like reverence, words like submission, words like devotion, affection, allegiance, those are the kind of words that we think about when we think about New Testament worship. So again, the only question is not, are you going to bow down and kiss someone's feet? It's whose feet are you going to bow down and kiss? That's the only question. And Christmas says, the one, the only one who's worthy is Jesus. I feel like for us, we have two major issues when it comes to worship. There are others, but the two that I think of. One is, although as most of you in this room are Christians, and you would say, I, I direct my worship to Jesus, Spirit. But functionally, many of us are polytheists, many gods. Hinduism is the dominant religion in the world that is at all. I only believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God of the Bible. But functionally, many of us live, and we, we may say, I don't bow down and kiss any, the feet of anyone else. But yet, in our, it's our affection, it's divided between Jesus and someone or something else. Maybe you can turn when you're hurting where do you turn when you're hurting? Help. The answer to that question, that fills in the blank on some of those things are destructive. It's alcohol or pornography. You're turning to them when you're looking for comfort or when you need help directed towards Jesus. For some who we look to to help us sort things, good gift, but at times even those for us, kind of an idol. It's one of the things you're told when you begin for people attaching to you only be attached Savior. And some of you, or someone's felt that way, to take a good place, God. Who do you think? Had something with art? They're the pressure. Culturally, you can look at the idols. You just look, watch, watch TV, the commercials. Those are the idols. Health, beauty, youth, money. Not just what's being marketed, but how they're marketing to us. Within the church, again, we tend to take good things and turn them into little gods. Money is an easy one. It becomes a source of security for so many of us. Gods should be our source of security. It's easy to look to money. Family, huge potential for idolatry there. Again, a great gift that God gives to us. I see it all the time. Couples are coming in, and one of them is putting so much pressure on the other to be their everything. Nobody can be your everything but Jesus. Source of security, unconditional love, all you're doing is setting yourself up for disappointment and you're crushing your spouse in the process. I see it among our peers with, with children and the happiness and well-being of parents. It's, it's, they're on the roller coaster of how well their children are doing. If their children are doing well, then the parents are doing well. And when the children are not, the parents aren't. The, the fulfillment of the child becomes the sense of worth and identity for the parent. 
And your kids either wind up recognizing that and manipulating you, and they become the ruler of your house because they realize really quick, mom and dad's mood hinges on me, and that's a, there's a lot of power there. Or what happens most likely is your kids crack under the pressure to perform. It's a lot of weight to ask a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old or a 14-year-old to say, your performance, my success as a person, my worth as a person is dependent on how well you perform in these different areas of your life. It's not the only reason why anxiety is on the rise among 13 to 18-year-olds, but it's a major reason. It's unintentional, but it's what happens. We take something good that God has given us and we turn it into a God. Functional polytheism. So just take 10 seconds. Ask the Lord this question. Where, to whom am I tempted to direct worship that belongs only to you? Just ask that question real brief. Good. You hang on to that. You have a chance to do something about that here in a little bit. This is Matthew 2. You know this story. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, magi, or wise men, from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream to not go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Just a little background. You've heard that story before. So the wise men are astronomers slash astrologers from Persia. Astronomers, they studied the stars. Astrologers, they used the stars to help them interpret the current events and to help the kings determine what they should do in the future. Kind of read, read the tea leaves. They're reading the stars. Astronomers slash astrologers. They would have been people who are rich, people who are well-connected, people who were powerful. We say there was three because there are three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There may have been three. There may have been more. We don't know. But there was definitely a group. They had servants and attendants, and they would have traveled in a caravan. And they saw something, and nobody knows what they saw. We call it the star Bethlehem. May have been some kind of supernatural light that God created just for this purpose. Some people say it was a supernova. That's a star that's dying and is really bright for a couple of months. Some people say it was the conjunction of certain planets that would have meant something to these astronomer, astrologers. They would have seen the, the uh, particular alignment of planets and said that means there's a king born in Israel, what, whatever, we don't know. But whatever they saw, it was compelling enough that they saddled up their camels and rode a thousand miles to a foreign country to find this 
king. And so, of course, they go to Jerusalem. That's where you would think you would find royalty in the capital city. And they go to Herod, and they say, where's the one-born king of the Jews? And Herod is disturbed. That's, it's, it's a strong word. He's in great turmoil, or he's terrified. Herod is paranoid. He's, he kills his favorite wife. He had more than one. He kills his brother-in-law. He's killed several of his sons already because he's afraid they're trying to plot against him. He's a paranoid man. And when he hears hey, there may be a, there's a king of the Jews, there may be a rival to his throne, he's terrified. He's, his insides are all stirred up. So he asks the Jewish leaders and says, hey, where is your king supposed to be born? And, you, and looking at Micah, there's prophecy about the Messiah. They say it's in Bethlehem, which is just six miles away. That's it. A couple hours journey, six miles away. And so the wise men, the Magi, they follow the star to Bethlehem. They find Jesus at that point. He's somewhere between six months and 24 months old. He's a baby, toddler maybe at the oldest. And these rich, grown, powerful, well-connected men bow down before him. They give him gold and frankincense and myrrh, gifts that are fit for royalty. You see in that passage three responses to, to Jesus' birth, three ways that people respond to Jesus, and we still do that. Herod is hostile. He wants to kill Jesus. If we read on, the next section of Matthew says, Herod kills every baby who's two years old and under, all the baby boys who are born in Bethlehem because he's trying to wipe out, he's trying to exterminate Jesus. He's trying to find this one who he sees as a potential rival to his throne and kill him before he can even kind of get started in his life. And there still is hostility to him. There are places around the world where people can't kill Jesus, but they certainly try to stamp out the gospel. They try to stamp out the church that kill Christians. Not our reality here, but there is hostility, some. If that's you, if you're in this church this morning and you're hostile to Jesus, bless you for coming to a church, knowing that's how you feel. And we'd love to talk with you about that if we could. But there is some of that. Again, that's not going to apply to many of you. You see what I think is probably the, the saddest response. It's the response of the religious leaders. They're just apathetic. They, they, they don't respond at all. So these guys theoretically have been waiting hundreds of years for the Messiah to be born. And now they hear he could be six miles away and they don't take a step. Now, they may say these guys, these pagan astronomers, they don't know anything. But again, something compelled them to travel a thousand miles and to bring some really expensive gifts. So you would think at least some level of curiosity would be stirred in the religious leaders and they'd go check it out. But they don't. Completely apathetic. And then you have the wise men, the magi, and their, their response, worship, sacrifices, extensive travel, bowing down before an 18-month-old, giving gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. I don't want to make more of those guys than, than, than needs to be made. It could have been the next year they were traveling to some other king and doing the same thing for him. They go back to Persia and they worship their own gods. But for what we see in this story, they went to great lengths to acknowledge that Jesus is the king of the Jews and that he'd been born. For many of us, I said the first problem for many of us when it comes to worship is 
functionally, we're polytheists. When it comes to our life, we tend to turn someplace other than Jesus when we need help. When it comes to how we define success, we, did, we tend to define it in a way other than how Jesus defines it. And, and that definition of worship for us is apathy over engagement. For, for whatever reason, and maybe just because apathy is easy, that's kind of the default posture. And engagement requires some level of intentionality. But we, we land somewhere on that continuum. Most of us are not on the continuum, are not kind of on the Herod side of things. We're not openly hostile towards Jesus. But if we're honest, we spend a lot more time kind of where the religious leaders were, apathetic towards him, than where the wise men were, intentionally engaging, seeking out, bowing down, giving gifts. Remember, worship is not just about singing. When we hear worship, that's what most of us think, what we just did. And that's good and right. Psalms is full of musical references. Psalms is not just a prayer book. It's also a hymn book. It's full of musical references. Through So absolutely, singing is an expression of worship. And to me, it's the expression of worship that's it's the easiest to engage in. It's a, nice, it's, it's a nice place to begin to, to explore what does it mean to live a life of devotion and affection and allegiance towards Jesus. It's a great place to me to begin to explore what does it look like for me in all of my life to bow down to him, to yield all of my life to him, to give gifts to him in every area of my life. Singing is one of the places where we can begin to explore that. It's really important. So how do we grow? How do we move from magi to, I mean, excuse me, from religious leader to wise man, from apathetic to engaged? And again, to me, singing is the low-hanging fruit. It's the easiest place to begin to engage. So I'll just give you a little bit on that. And I want you thinking about it, not just in terms of what we do in here corporately, what you do on your own, but also beginning to think, what does this look like lived out in other areas of my life? The wise men didn't go sing to Jesus. That's not what they did. They did worship him without doing that. But for us, again, I think singing is one of the ways that gets us into the, the flow and the rhythm of a life of worship. And it's something we constantly, I would say, need to come back to. One thing that's interesting about that word, proskuneo, in the New Testament is it's, there's 54 times it's mentioned. I said that earlier. All but seven of them are clustered. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Revelation. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Revelation have 47 of the 54 instances of that word. And what's interesting about Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Revelation is those are the five books of the New Testament where I'm gonna say Jesus is, quote, the most present. It's where he's physically among his people. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because he's physically on the earth. And in Revelation, because John in a vision has been taken up to heaven. Worship in Revelation is also used of the beast, who in Revelation, again, is physically present. There's something about proximity to New Testament worship. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Revelation, in all five of those books, we see Jesus interacting with humanity very directly. And the response of humanity is to literally fall down at his feet. It's worship. 
If you want to grow from religious leader to wise man, if you want to move from apathetic to engaged, get to know Jesus better. John 4.23, probably the most important verse in the New Testament regarding worship. A time is coming and has now come, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman. When when true worshipers, genuine, authentic worshipers, will worship the Father, relational word there, in spirit and in truth. Why? Because those are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. There's not a lot of times in the New Testament we see where God says, this is actually what I'm looking for. He's looking for people who worship him in spirit and in truth. Remember, in the New Testament, truth is not intellectual knowledge. It's relational knowledge. It's worshiping one you know, that idea of worshiping a father, not just a God, not just the God, not just the king, but your father. It's different. Get to know him. The more you get to know him, the more you will engage with him in worship. Get to know him, and you know how to do that. Two primary ways, in reading the Bible and spending time in prayer. And then I would say you have to make a choice. Even as, as well as you know the Lord, at some point there has to be a choice. It's a decision of your will to say, I am going to worship. For many of us, we've, we, particularly again when, it, when we think about worship as singing, we fall under, into this trap or this ditch that says, well, I, in order for me to be authentic to who I am and to where I am, I'm going to allow my expression of the Lord. It's going to be based on that, who I am and, and, and kind of where I am emotionally. So we allow our circumstances, our feelings, and even our personality to determine the way we engage with the Lord. That's not, the, that's not good. We worship based on who God is, not based on who we are. Like, y'all know me. If we want to have a contest on who has the most limited emotional range, we can do that. We can have a contest for see who's the most introverted. We can have a contest to see who's the most emotionally unintelligent. I'm in the running for all of those things. So that, that, can't, that, that can't be our barometer for engagement in worship with the Lord. We worship based on who he is, not based on who we are. You close your I close my eyes because it helps me focus. Not out of some romantic notion of Jesus as my boyfriend. I raise my hands because that's a way for me physically to say that's true. I really really agree with that statement that we just sung. That's why I raised And oftentimes there's no feeling involved. I don't necessarily raise my hands or kneel down because I feel something. Sometimes feelings come after that, but that's not the motivation. The motivation is this is a true statement or this is a physical expression of a posture of my heart of reverence and submission. Many of you know that. Worship is, to worship in spirit and truth, part of that is to recognize who God is and to respond accordingly, regardless of your personality type, introvert, extrovert, thinker, feeler, artist, engineer, it doesn't matter. That, that's irrelevant. What matters is who he is. 
and bringing him the allegiance, the affection, and the loyalty, and the submission, the reverence that he deserves. And then as you begin to do that, corporately I think is an easy place to start. Then you can begin to do that on your own. Bo puts a little Spotify playlist to that email newsletter. Those are great songs. Begin to worship on your own in your home. Then it becomes, to me, that's a doorway. It becomes easier to begin to say, what does it look like for me to yield every area of my life, to bow down to Jesus in every area of my life, to acknowledge him as king and Lord of every area of my life, not just to intellectual assent to that, but to actually bow down before him, to open myself to his desires in every area of my life. One of the things about worship is it reminds us that God's here and we're down here. We, we worship that which we see as greater than us. And so when we worship, again, thinking particularly about singing, it reminds us of our uh, it gives us perspective. And again, it's not, we're not grovelly. We've been redeemed. We're sons and daughters, absolutely, for sure. And God is holy and he's other than. And worship reminds us of that. And there's very few things that open us up to, the, to, to what God wants to do in our life, like humility. And worship reinforces that. One of the places that you're going to experience hope and joy and peace is in worship because when you worship God, it reminds you of your need for him. It reminds you of his greatness and your dependence. I think it's some of what Carolyn was trying to get at this morning through her, devo her Advent devotion. When we're reminded of our need for him, then joy and peace and hope, we, we receive those things as gifts. I don't want to make worship the means to an end, but it does posture us before the Lord in a way that very few things, very few other things do. So this is how I want us to close. We're going to close with worship. And I want you, without feeling like you're performing, I want you to engage, whatever that looks like for you. And I want you to engage based on who Jesus is, not based on who you are. And then we're going to give you an opportunity to come forward for prayer. We've got 13 minutes. So we should have enough time to do both. So, Bo, you come on. And so this first song, without performing, I want you to engage the Lord based on who he is. And then I'll come up after this first song, and I'll give you an opportunity to come forward and receive prayer uh, for some different things that may be stirring in your life. So you guys stand. I'm going to say a prayer, and then we're going to worship. God, I'm so thankful that you're worthy of worship. 